0: Boy, you can identify the best Christians in any church on Super Bowl Sunday night. Amen? Thank you for being at church tonight. Now, I believe that we as Christians ought to be just as excited about the Lord as they are about football. Amen? So, uh, And yet, I've never had Gatorade poured over me as a pastor, you know? And I'm okay with that, I guess, but uh, we ought to celebrate the Lord uh, this evening, Acts chapter 4. Years ago, there were two young men working their way through Leland Stanford University, and they needed money badly for their tuition and other things, and so they invited a Polish comp- uh, composer at that time. His name was Igne- Ignacy Paderewski, if I'm saying that right. He was one of the leading pianists in the world, and they came him to, uh, called him to do a benefit concert at school. They're hoping to raise some money. They worked hard, and they uh, it cost $2,000 just to bring him. And uh, as hard as they worked, they put the concert on. He came. He played. They found out afterwards they only had $1,600. They actually lost money in that concert. So they went up to Mr. Paderewski, and they gave him the $1,600, embarrassed, and they accompanied that with a promissory note for the other $400. Paderewski said, that won't do. He waived his fee. Not only did he waive his fee, but he also paid for the event uh, that they, for the uh, concert hall where they held the event just to be a help to these young men. Years go by. Paderewski becomes the prime minister of Poland. World War I came, and the people of Poland were starving. Paderewski did all he could to help uh, feed the starving thousands. There was one man that could help. His name was Herbert Hoover. He was the president of the United States. And, uh, he, in 19, actually between 1914 and 1922, an estimated, uh, 200 million people were fed by the American Relief Administration, which was started by Herbert Hoover. 1.5 million starving Poles were saved. Paderewski journeyed to Paris to thank Herbert Hoover for the relief. Mr. Paderewski, Herbert Hoover, says, don't worry about it. You don't remember me, but I, you helped me when I was a student in college and when I was in a hole myself. You know, you never can tell what generosity will do for you or what it will mean to others long after you forget about it. But for a church to have the spirit of generosity and for a church to have uh, that type of uh, the, the type of spirit that we ought to have with one another—it's going to take unity. Uh, it is hard to be generous in a place where there is a lack of unity. Now, uh, there's two ways for us to be united. I've read we can be frozen together or melted together. But the children, uh, Christians, child of God, ought to be united in brotherly love through Christ. Now, being united does not mean that we work to try to agree with each other in every aspect. We're not all going to agree in everything, Uh, and that's not the point anyway. You know, for uh, using uh, pastors as an example, Pastor Sousa and I, to be united in ministry, we don't get together and hammer out every single issue make sure that we are united with one another. That's not the idea of biblical unity. The idea of biblical unity is for me to be so in tune with Jesus Christ Uh, you to be so in tune with Jesus Christ that we're automatically in tune with one another. That's the idea of biblical unity. And we must have it, uh, we must have unity in a church for it to do the work of God. Uh, We are to be identified by the love that we have for one another. Jesus himself said it. I read a story of, of the Lone Ranger and Tonto. They were riding along a canyon one day and All of a sudden, without warning, they were surrounded by Indians all around. And they were painted up for war. They were obviously itching for a fight. And they surrounded uh, the Lone Ranger and Tonto. And the Lone Ranger looks over at his friend and he says, Tonto, what are we going to do? And Tonto says, what do you mean we, white man? (laughs) Now that's what it seems like in churches sometimes, doesn't it? We think we've got people with us, and all of a sudden, a hard time comes, and people drop like flies. But we need unity. Now, look at with me, if you would, at our passage, Acts chapter four, verse number thirty-two. The Bible says we've we've already talked now. Remember about. Uh, um, we, we've been going through the Book of Acts here. We've talked here about the uh, the, the fact that they were in trouble with the uh, high priest and with all the religious leaders. They've ordered them not to speak the name of Christ anymore. They've given them a slap on the wrist, essentially, and ordered them not to do this anymore. Now, look what they do in verse number thirty-two. And the multitude of them that believed were of one heart and of one soul. Neither said they uh, said any of them that ought of the things which he possessed was his own, but they had all things common, and with great power gave the apostles witness of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. Neither was there any among them that lacked, for as many as were possessors of lands or houses sold them and brought the prices of the things that were sold and laid them down at the apostles' feet, and distribution was made unto every man according as he had need. And Joseph, which by the apostles was surnamed Barnabas, which is being interpreted the son of Consolation, a Levite of the Christ- uh, and of the country of Cyprus, having land, sold it, brought the money, and laid it at the apostles' feet. Father, I pray now in these few moments we have together that you would speak to us from your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We see here a unity, a mystical oneness in verse number 32. And the multitude of them that were believed were of one heart, one soul, neither said any of them aught of the things he possessed was his own. Now, can you imagine a church like this? I mean, they're not being selfish. They're not being greedy. Uh, They are of one heart. They're of one mind. This is what I believe God has in mind for His church. This is the kind of harmony that Jesus prayed for in John chapter 17. This was what He desired for His followers. Now, in the early church... This only lasted for a very short time. We see this in the early part of Acts, and of course then you get into the Pauline epistles and you see problems and you see false teachers and you see people fighting and you see the same issues we see in churches today. Uh, but for a very short time, they had a very special and sweet oneness. But even in the church, uh, the church is not exempt from the decline that comes from sin. And whenever there are people, uh, we're going to have trouble. Uh, because we are sinners, amen? Guess what? Your pastor is a sinner. Uh, he's a rotten, low-down sinner. And uh, that's just the fact of the matter. And so what are we are? We're sinners saved by grace, and we are trying to do our best for the Lord Jesus Christ, but we're going to have those issues. We're going to have things come up in the church because we are sinners. People will people. That's what they'll do. They're going to people. and uh, And so because of that, we have to recognize that and uh, stay on guard for this unity. They had a mystical oneness here. Uh, it wouldn't be long before this church here wouldn't all be one. They would be infected with uh, charismatics who would try to bring in false teaching. And by, by charismatics, I'm not talking about the religion. I'm talking about people that were charismatic in their uh, nature that were uh, easily believed. Uh, they would see divisions raise its ugly head. They would have resentment between believers. Remember we just talked about out of Philippians. Uh, never again would the church be this unanimously united as they were right here. The presence of sin always, always destroys and ruins the perfection that God designs. You can look at Genesis chapter 1, 2, and 3 and see that happen. God uh, created a perfect environment, and we brought sin into the world. Uh, now, this here is not something, this oneness, this unity is not something that can be produced or manufactured by a program. It is not something that can be brought about by a formula. It has to be of the heart. If you look at verse number 31, you know that they had this because they were filled with the Holy Spirit. Uh, They had a good dose of God on them, and so they had this unity with one another. But for the moment... This church was one, not only in its mystical oneness, but its ministerial oneness. Look at verse number 33. And with great power gave the apostles witness of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, and great grace was upon them all. Remember, they had been silenced by the pompous religious leaders a few verses earlier. You go, you can go, but don't you dare mention the name of Jesus again. A lot of good that did. They immediately went out and started preaching again. In fact, it almost was like they received encouragement from these pompous religious leaders. Uh, Peter said it, "Uh, would you rather we obey God or would you rather we obey men? We're going to obey God. And they went out and kept preaching the gospels. The religious leaders may have drove them to their knees. The Holy Spirit drove them back up on their feet and therefore were doing the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. No foe could deter them. No fear could disturb disturb them. And they were preaching. And now this verse tells us what they were preaching the resurrection. It was an unprecedented event. Hey, this was uh, actually still in the memory of people's minds. Uh, This was an actual happening. It was something that had been witnessed. It was an unprecedented event, nothing like it in all of history, and they did not stop preaching it just because it irritated the religious elite. Amen. They preached it. It was the truth. It authenticated the message of the church. It vindicated the claims of Christ. It confirmed that salvation was complete. And furthermore, it was public knowledge. Again, most people were aware or knew someone, maybe, that had seen Jesus himself. There was over 500 witnesses. In fact, Paul later said to King Agrippa, this thing was not done in a corner, Acts chapter 26. There was also here a material oneness. Verse 34 and 35 talks about how they pooled their resources. They sold their land. They brought the prices of the things that were sold. They laid that at the apostles' feet. Now, can I, just to deter, so we don't take this wrongly or interpret wrongly, this was not an early experiment in communism. Communism is an atheistic philosophy. It elevates the state above the individual. And there's no place in the Bible that would uh, condone anything like communism. Uh, Furthermore, communism is not voluntary. Communism is forced by men who are hungry for power. What happened in Jerusalem here was all voluntary. Nobody was telling them to do it. The disciples did not tell them to do it. The apostles did not order this. Uh, The motivation was Christian love. The motivation was sharing with one another, because that's exactly what they desired to do. This also was not monasticism, which was basically monasticism is a retreat from the world and into a kind of a, like a compound. And these people, they continued their normal lives. They were simply attempting to share what they had. What we see here is the real oneness and the real unity of a church working together. It's a manifestation of the oneness of the body of Christ. This concern and compassion, it was a display of grace. It was a display of grace that they felt that they had received from the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, they what Jesus had done for them, what the Lord did for them, now they're sharing this with others. What a congregation this must have been. It is no wonder that people wanted in. I mean, you had people that were joining this Amidst persecution, there's persecution going on and they're still knocking down the doors of the church wanting to be a part of this great work. Why? Because of the love that was being showed here. Oh, listen tonight. If we could get a, just a a glimpse of this into our own life. This is a lonely world we lived in, uh, we live in now. It's epitomized by selfishness, rudeness, apathy. Nobody cares for anybody but themselves. And here was a group of people that cared, really cared. And from the outside, people can see Remember what Jesus said, By this shall all men know that you're my disciples if you have skirts to the ankle. No, 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 love for one another. So we, we have to be careful here that uh, we don't uh, put things ahead of that. And so here, I'm convinced today that if the church today had the kind of love, care, concern, and unity for one another that this early church did, we'd have a hard time keeping them out too. But we don't. We allow uh, schisms, and we allow problems to come in and rancor us. Now, I'm uh, I, I, again, I like preaching this type of things when there is no schism, so nobody start thinking there is. Uh, if there is a schism, I keep quiet about it. But, uh, but uh, we, you know what I'm saying. We, have, uh, we, have, we sometimes limit our own witness and our own effectiveness as a church by not having the oneness and the love for one another that draws people into the body of Christ. Man, you couldn't keep people out. The government couldn't keep people out. The religious leaders couldn't threaten the people enough. They wanted in. They wanted a part of this. Why? Because they saw the tremendous love of Christ displayed. Oh, friends, if we would display that the way this church did, there's nothing that could stop us. Understand, by the way, this sharing attitude was organic. It was not demanded by the apostles. Otherwise, it would be a religion. But it wasn't a religion. This came from the heart. This was not a demand you've got to... Now, by the way, there have been religions that have demanded this. There was a... a, Remember a few years ago, the Heaven's Gate cult. They had a great name for a leader, their leader. Dole. (laughs) That was his name. Dole. Uh, He commanded that all of them sell their property and give him the money. That was not... That's religion. This isn't religion. This is a heart's expression of love and oneness. It came from an intense feeling of compassion and love for one another. We ought to learn from them. Now, because of this unity that they had, then what comes and just follows naturally after that is generosity. Now look at uh, an example here, thirty-six, verse 36, And Joseph, who by the apostles was named Barnabas, which is being interpreted the son of Consolation, a Levite of the country of Cyprus, having land, sold it, brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. If Christians were to vote for their favorite New Testament Bible characters, I would guess that Barnabas probably reached the top ten of any list. Barnabas is the son of encouragement, consolation, encouragement, same, same meaning. Uh, he was an encourager. Uh, we're drawn to that type of person, aren't we? Don't you like encouragers? I mean, maybe you like sourpusses, but I like encouragers, amen? I like people that will encourage me that'll uh, have a good word to say. And, and Barnabas was this type of person. It's no accident that so many Christian organizations today uh, have used the name Barnabas. There's a Barnabas Fund. It uh, encourages uh, prayer and support for persecuted Christians. There's the Barnabas Group. That is a way for businesses to help ministries. There's the Barnabas Center. It's a counseling center. The Barnabas Hospital in New Jersey, and we could go on and on and on. Encouragement is what this man was known for. Encouragement will impact other people's lives far beyond your own. You encourage somebody and it'll affect them long after you forget it. They'll remember it. I like this by William Arthur Ward wrote, Flatter me and I may not believe you. Criticize me and I may not like you. Ignore me and I may not forgive you. Encourage me and I will never forget you. We ought to imitate this man, Barnabas, a reflection, by the way, of the greatest encourager of all, Jesus Christ. The first thing we need to know about Barnabas that it wasn't his real name. His real name was Joseph, who's a Greek form of Joseph. Barnabas was a nickname given to him by the apostles. Barnabas, we're told, means the son of consolation or encouragement. I wonder if the, if all of us in here did a little activity tonight and We all took a piece of paper and we wrote down a nickname for you. The rest of us would write. In fact, should we get some papers and do that? Probably not. Probably get a bunch of people offended. But uh, what, what would your nickname be if somebody else had to pick your nickname? Just by the way you acted as Christian, what would your nickname be? If you're brave enough, start asking people. If you're brave enough, that's a brave thing to do. What would your nickname be? Would it be encourager? Would it be oh no, let's run, here she comes? You know, uh, what would your nickname be, Joseph or Barnab Joseph? Joseph, I'm sorry, his nickname became Barnabas. He was such an encourager, man. When he came around, they said, hey, here's Barnabas or Joseph. Let's call him the son of consolation, the encourager. If we look at his name, by the way, we can find out why. This is an interesting. I, I'm not. I'm not big, as you know, on Greek and Hebrew. I know a little Greek, a little Hebrew. One owns a bakery. One owns a diner. But but uh, looking at the Greek original here, uh, "Son of Consolation" comes from the word Huios Paraklēsis, which is closely related to Parakletos, which was used by Jesus in naming the Holy Spirit in John fourteen sixteen when he called him a Comforter. So you have the son of consolation comes from the same root word as comforter, the Holy Spirit. You know why I believe Barnabas was such an encourager? Because he was full of the Holy Spirit. He was yielded himself to the Holy Spirit. You can't yield yourself to the Holy Spirit and be a godly Christian, and be a sourpuss, look like you've been sucking pickle juice through a PVC pipe. You can't do it. You'll be an encourager if you're full of the Holy Spirit. The expression, the son of, is a common one in, in the Hebrew. James and John were known as the sons of thunder. basically means someone filled with that quality. Barnabas was so full of encouragement that the apostles gave him the name. What an encouragement he must have been. Now, as we go throughout the book of Acts and we'll continue... <coughs> We'll see over and over Barnabas doing this. In Acts chapter 9, uh, he encouraged the newly converted Saul. I can't wait to get to that story and talk about that. What a blessing that was when Saul got saved. Nobody believed it. <laughs> Imagine he's uh, persecuting Christians and he gets gloriously saved, and he tells everybody, ah, "I don't believe it." Imagine if you come to Christ go, but Barnabas did. Barnabas went with him and helped him and encouraged him. He encouraged the new church in Antioch in Acts 11. He encouraged young John Mark in Acts 15. So Barnabas, a lot we don't know about him, comes from Cyprus, uh, about 60 miles south of Antioch, (coughs) famous for its copper. He was a Levite. And so because he was a Levite, he was not allowed to own land into Israel, but he could, and he did evidently own land overseas. And presumably this is what he sold. As a Jew, he would have been taught the scriptures from a young age like Timothy was. Uh, And we have no idea how old he is, kind of seems like he might have been a little older man. He seems kind of like a father figure to Paul, but we don't really know that. Uh, We don't know what brought him Jerusalem. Uh, We don't know when he was converted. Uh, The New Testament doesn't give us his salvation testimony. In fact, uh, the New Testament usually puts more focus on how you're walking with Christ than how you came to Christ, although I would never diminish the importance of your testimony. That's an important thing. But uh, Barnabas here, he was uh, seems like he was an early convert, But it's enough for us to know he was a believer and he was found faithful in the service of the Lord and he was an encourager. These were the golden age of the church, as I mentioned. In Acts chapter 2, we have Peter preaching. 3,000 people join uh, the church. We've looked already at the tremendous unity in the early church. Uh, In the middle of all this, though, persecution broke out. Verse 29, uh, they prayed about the threatenings against them. Uh, the Lord answered by uh, pouring out again the power of his Holy Spirit. And we look at the tremendous care they had for one another. And it's in this atmosphere that Barnabas brings his gift. Sells his land, brings his gift. What a great impression that must have made. He's doing exactly what Jesus told the rich young ruler to do in Luke chapter 19 or 18, which he refused to do giving up his riches for the cause of Christ. Now, the disciples presumably already knew him, but his gift must have, must have really established his reputation. He made evident his love for his brothers and sisters in Christ. He was a man whose treasure was in heaven, not on earth. Now, just in closing, i got a lot more I wanted to go over, but we're short on time. I just want to mention a couple of things that uh, this did for Barnabas in giving this gift. It gave him treasures in heaven. When we share unselfishly, when we give of ourselves without concern of benefit, guess what? We still benefit. We do. We still benefit. We might not benefit right away or here on earth, but by generosity, we are laying up treasures in heaven. Barnabas was actually following Jesus' counsel, as I mentioned, to the rich young ruler. Luke 18, And And when Jesus heard these things and said unto him, Yet lackest thou one thing, sell all that thou hast, and distribute unto the poor, and, he says, thou shalt have treasure in that's what barnabas was doing uh, he was laying up treasure in heaven that's by the way the lord's counsel uh, in matthew as well chapter 6 which tells us uh, uh, those principles of of uh, laying up treasures not in on earth but in heaven uh, as matthew 6:24 tells us no man can serve two masters years ago someone came to mark twain it was a, a mormon man came to mark twain and mark twain was by no means a biblical scholar, as you understand, but came to Mark Twain and said, you can't find any place in the Bible that says you can't have two wives. And Mark Twain says, absolutely. Matthew 6, 24, no man can serve two masters. That's not what that's talking about. Alright, so we'll just move on. I don't know why. That wasn't in my notes. That was completely free. Won't charge any bit for it. There's another benefit here. Spiritual liberation. On top of Helping the poor, investing eternity. Barnabas was setting himself free from worldly concerns. No more would he have to go back to Cyprus and manage his estate. He could, and in fact, he did from this point on, concentrate his work fully on the work of Christ. Became a missionary, traveling with Paul, encouraging churches. How much of our time and our energy is taken up with worldly concerns? I know we can't all quit our jobs and go in the ministry. But still, as we talked this morning, we waste a lot of time in worldly concerns. How often is the seed of the Word of God, as Jesus said in Luke 18, 14, choked up with cares and riches and pleasures of this life? Would a little sharing, would a little generosity in the family of God help us out with that? Oh, yes, sure it would. takes the focus off of ourselves as it did for this church here. Of course, the Bible does not encourage foolish behavior. It's not telling us to <coughs> go into the poorhouse because we give everything away, uh, but his generosity here is an example to us not to live for temporal things. We can be responsible with our family's finances and still not live <coughs> solely for temporal things. From Psalm 39, 6, Surely every man walketh in a vain, uh, show they are disquieted in vain, he heapeth up riches and knoweth not who shall gather them. How many Christians are heaping up riches for themselves? Barnabas was not. Barnabas' treasure, it was in heaven. His focus was outward. wasn't selfish. I believe, and I really uh, I want to leave you with this thought, but I believe that a high percentage of church problems... And discord comes when people's focus goes from there to here. When we start focusing on ourselves, she did this to me, he did that to me, he didn't say hi to me. I got a call recently, irate person, because I didn't shake their hand on Sunday morning. I'm sorry I missed one. And uh, come right now and shake your hand where you're at. But uh, we, we put our focus here, and then we get into trouble. God... Routinely tells us instructions and scripture, and what it does, it, it takes our focus away from ourselves and it puts it out on other people. Amen. That's where Barnabas was. And That's where ours needs to be as well. Let's have every head bowed, every eye closed. Have the pianists come forward. Maybe the Lord.